Well, welcome to the Christian Union. Uh, uh, if you're new or visiting, you haven't met me, my name is Matt. Uh, I work alongside the Christian Union here on campus and have done so for a number of years now. Um, and usually what I do is I'll, I'll come along and I'll choose a Bible passage and we'll talk about what that Bible passage has to say to us. And you might be sitting here wondering, hang on, we've just read about a talking snake. What's that got to do with identity? Uh, and hopefully as we um, work through that passage a little bit later on in the talk, you'll begin to understand why we read that. Um, but for now, uh, you would have received an outline as you came through. So if you the sort of person who just needs a few kind of uh, visual prompts to help you follow along, that's there for you. And the heading should mirror roughly what I'm about to say. Um, Today we're talking about um, identity, specifically the statement that you may have heard uh, on the interwebs at various points, I am who I say that I am. And the way that I want to begin exploring that uh, idea and that topic is to observe something uh, that I've seen in bookshops and, and online and on podcast lists and those sorts of things, which is this. Over the last 10 years, I've noticed there has been a steady increase in the amount of resources being produced to help us be happy. Now that makes sense, right? Everybody wants to be happy. I don't think anybody intentionally sets out to be unhappy in life. Uh, but one of the things that I've been really disappointed about is it turns out that most of these resources are actually pretty sad. So they're mostly just tips and tricks, things to stop you from feeling unhappy, things like regular exercise and sleep and thinking happy thoughts. That's literally something that they tell you to do to be happy. It's like, okay, that's very, very useful. Uh, but, but none of them really kind of dig down uh, and get to the heart of it and tell us how to be happy. It's all just like 10 rules for a happier life or 17 habits to make you happier day by day. Uh, but as I kind of work through a whole bunch of these different places and, and, and podcasts and things, one of the things that keeps coming up regularly uh, was actually a bit closer to the mark. And it was this idea that you have to be who you are. Uh, so here's um, an example of this from Forbes magazine. Uh, again, how to be happy, 20 ways to be happier today. Uh, you'll be uh, notice there that it's number 12 on the list, find your life purpose. Might interest you to know that um, of the 11 more important principles than finding a life purpose, one of them is celebrate you. Um, so I was a bit kind of uh, unexpected to kind of find something gold at, at number 12. But, but here's what it says. Uh, how to be happy, find your life purpose. Why are you here? How do you create impact? When you know your life purpose, you will know how to be happy because you have a life worth living, because you understand why you do what you do. You have direction, you have grounding, you have something you are working toward or someone you are working to inspire. Now that quote seems pretty legit, doesn't it? Right? If we want fulfilment and satisfaction in this life, then what we need to do is work out who we are and then live in accordance to that. Now, that's not a new concept, actually. That's been as, uh, as old as Greek philosophy. Aristotle uh, banged the drum about this one 2,000 years ago. But embedded in this particular quote is not just the solution to our quest for self-fulfillment and happiness, but also a very modern problem. See, it tells you that you need to work out who you are, but it gives you absolutely no direction as to how to do it. Now, over the last week or so, the UWA Christian Union has been asking the question, who am I? And it's perhaps the most profound question that somebody can ask. And that's because it's the most fundamental. It's a question of identity. And the answer to that question will determine your understanding of yourself, your sense of meaning and significance. It'll influence your life direction and the choices that you make. Now, that question has been asked throughout the ages by humanity, but in recent years it has taken on a level of existential angst that we haven't yet seen in history. The question of who you are matters more than it ever has before, 
And I want to suggest to you that's because of how we answer the question, who am I? And the answer that we give is the title of today's talk, I am who I say I am. Now, for most of human history, when somebody thought of themselves, they thought of themselves in the context of community. I belong to this family. I live in this village. I do this kind of work like my father before me and like his father before him. And it's not as if back then there was any sort of like no individuality. But the place that I found my meaning and my satisfaction and my security was in the way that I, as an individual, participated in my community. It was by conforming to its traditions, fulfilling its expectations. And so uh, much of my identity, my sense of self, it was already determined for me by birth uh, by the things that were outside of me. My identity was received and not chosen. Uh, but our society today doesn't think like that anymore. The answer to the question, who am I, doesn't come from the outside. It's now located inside of me. So have a listen to this. This is how this particular blogger puts it. Now, the only person who can define who you are and what you want to achieve is you. How do you do that? I've said it before and I'll say it again. Be self-aware. Play to your strengths and respect your weaknesses. If you're a mechanic and you have the talent to become a podcast host of the number one show on flower arrangements, there's an idea for your life purpose, and it's something that you want to have happen for yourself, then do it. And I want to say that that statement, that, that, that you are the only person who can define who you are, is the mantra of our modern age. And on a basic level, I think it makes sense, doesn't it? Because only you have access to your thoughts and your feelings. Nobody else can tell you what you're thinking and feeling, only you can. But I think it also explains the massive increase in anxiety in your generation. Because what this says is that it's all on you. If you get this wrong, you're stuffed. And you've got nobody else to blame but yourself. And what I want to suggest to you today for the rest of this talk is that far from being the solution to your quest for self-fulfillment and satisfaction, the mantra, I am who I say that I am, is actually the reason that you can't find it. And so what I hope to show you from the Bible today is that there is another way to find who you are and live a life that is satisfying and pleasing. And it's not by defining yourself. And the way that we're going to see that is by going back all the way to the beginning of creation where we meet Adam and Eve, who were the first self-defining human beings. Now, to understand um, how they came about self-defining and where it ended up for them, we need to understand first the world that they lived in. And the world that they lived in was good. Now, and not good as in, yeah, okay, it's good, but it's not great. But good as in it was custom-built for them, and they were custom-built for it. And we see this in God's account of creation. We just read from Genesis 3, uh, but in the previous chapters in Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is God in the beginning creating the heavens and the earth. And at each stage, as he adds something to creation, he adds kind of light and then water and then moons and stars and all those sorts of things. He declares that it's good. But it's not until he gets to the end of his creative process and he creates humanity that he declares it very good. And what we see is that God creates a perfect place for humanity to dwell and live and flourish, where we could be at perfect peace and deeply happy as we did the things that humans do, as we mastered the world and tamed nature and trained and cultivated animals and built culture and related to one another with strange and confusing memes. All of the things that made humans humans, God custom built the arena so that we could do it and do it well. And so even if you've had very little to do with Christianity, there's a reason that you know what the Garden of Eden is. 
It's because it's a picture of perfect paradise. And that's exactly what God says he's made for us. Now, lots of people kind of look around the world, I think, and they see the suffering of sickness and death. They see the mental anguish and frustration of their lives. And they ask quite reasonably, well, hang on a minute. If there's a God, then why did he make the world like this? And the answer that the Bible gives is that, that quest to that question is that he didn't. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist, is on record for saying that the God of the Bible is a heavenly dictator and that living under God would be like living in a celestial North Korea. So, you know, heavy hitting there. But, but that's not the picture that the Bible presents. Here is a good God who made a good world for the humanity that he created for it. Now, obviously something went wrong, and the thing that went wrong was not God, but Adam and Eve, the first human beings, because they were the ones that decided to say, I am who I am. Uh, have a look with me at Genesis chapter 3. You can follow along here on the screen. And now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, now we find out later in the Bible that the serpent is not just a talking snake, uh, but a spiritual being called Satan, who is set on seeing God's good world destroyed. And the way that we're going to see him do that is he's going to set out to persuade Adam and Eve, and then by extension us, that God is not good. And that whatever it is that he's done in the world, he's done so in a way that he is holding out on us. And so he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, critical context, in the previous chapter, God has said to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And to be clear, this was the only prohibition that God makes in the entirety of his creation. Adam and Eve had millions of trees, plants, shrubs, bushes, roots, whatever it was, to eat from. And there was only one tree in the whole of the known creation that they couldn't eat from. Not even one type of tree, but one tree. And critically to understand this, it's a command that's given out of love. Because if they eat from that tree... God will judge them, they will die. And God doesn't want that for them. So he warns them, he puts a boundary around the hole that they might fall in and just says, this is a place that you don't want to go. But everything else is fair game. And in asking, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What the serpent is doing is making God's very small and reasonable prohibition seem like a massive, restrictive, oppressive one. A command that couldn't possibly be for their good. Now, as we continue to read in verses 2 and 3, the woman responds to the serpent. She repeats back the command, although notice that she doesn't just say we mustn't eat from the tree uh, in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will surely die. And God never said that. So already the serpent has a crack here and he's driving a wedge in it. Eve is making the commandment seem bigger and more oppressive than it actually is. Now the serpent, he kind of gets his wedge, he digs it in further, he gets even more daring in verse 4, and he directly contradicts God. And he says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now notice what uh, he is suggesting here. He's suggesting that living under God's direction and rule in a world that is custom built for you, doing the things that God custom designed for you to do, looking to him for life and blessing, that's a prison and it's a barrier to true fulfillment. It's not enough to be a human creature made by God in the service of God. You need to become like God yourself, otherwise your life is not worth living. God can't be trusted. He's holding out on you. Break free, set your own path. 
Now, Satan, he's blatantly lying at this point, but Adam and Eve believe him. And so we see there in verse 6 at the bottom, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And in that moment, what they did is they chose to base their identity on what they thought was best and not on what God, who made them, thought was best. And ever since then, human beings have consistently chosen to choose their own identity rather than the one that God gave them. Now, the Bible calls that sin, and it also tells us what the inevitable result of that action is. We face God's judgment. And the rest of Genesis 3, which Ponchita read out for us uh, before, details just what happens to Adam and Eve. They realise they're naked, they experience shame, they hide from each other, so the harmonious relationships in their world are now shattered, and God then curses them. Uh, And what happens? Well, uh, you see that they are then cut out of the garden, banished forever out of the presence of God upon whom their life depends. They die, just as God said they would. And what happens to Adam and Eve then spreads to everyone who came after them because everyone who came after them, including you and I, were the ones who said, I am who I say that I am. We die as well, not just physically but spiritually, and then one day forever when we stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, that seems a bit heavy, right? You might be like, well, that's a bit harsh, don't you think? But what the thing uh, that we need to understand here is, is that the severity of God's response tells us something about the seriousness of self-determination. You see, when we choose to define ourselves, we aren't just choosing between a set of neutral options, like I'm just going to be this kind of person or that kind of person. We're actually choosing to reject the God who made us and loves us, and we're completely disregarding what he says about us. And so to define ourselves at its heart is actually an act of rebellion, not just a free choice, but a moral issue that we will be accountable for. But just like Adam and Eve, it's not just that we die, but we experience life and curse. So like Adam and Eve, we experience the curse of God in our created reality. And practically, what does that mean? It means that the world falls to bits around us. No matter how hard we try, we just can't make things work. No matter how we try to answer the question, who am I, it never really quite brings fulfillment. We might get it one day or another. We might even get it for a couple of years. But the bottom falls out on us. However we define ourselves, whether it's according to our sporting prowess or our academic brilliance or our romantic relationships or in more recent times our sexuality or our gender, regardless of what it is, we still feel empty. And so the very thing that we're seeking when we're declaring I am who I say that I am, it's the very thing that God denies us in judgment. Now a lot of the things that I just listed, uh, they're not bad things. Uh, they're actually quite good things and they are components of who we are. We are partly our sexuality, our gender, um, our abilities, um, our desires, uh, but we can't base our entire identity on those things. And the issue and the reason for that is because as soon as you cut the creator out of the picture, then all that you have left to base your sense of self on is other created things. And that means that you are reordering the creation that God made and you're putting pieces in relation to each other and in relation to you that they were never meant to inhabit. And so it should come as no surprise to us that things break when we do that. But the thing that I want to say is this, that even in God's judgment, we see his mercy. 
Because as we look on in our life and we see the frustration of our longings and we see the frustration of our heart desires, it's a signal to us that something isn't right. And understand, God is actively involved in this process. It's not like, okay, you've just kind of done this neutral, pragmatic thing. You haven't used the screwdriver quite the way that you're supposed to, so of course it's not going to work. God is intentionally frustrating the process to signal to us not just that we've chosen the wrong identity apart from him, but our choosing of the wrong identity is an issue of morality and one that needs to be repented of. They're not just merely the nasty whims of a fickle God. It's like, oh yeah, well, if you don't want to listen to me, then you guys can just burn. They're actually the actions of a loving God. One who wants to see you restored to a right identity and a right relationship with him. C.S. Lewis, the, the writer of Narnia, uh, once said that our suffering, our pain, is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I want to suggest to us that our frustrated longings are actually a part of that. He is in his kindness telling us something is wrong. So one of the things you need to hear is that your human longings are real. Those desires for meaning and for fulfillment and for satisfaction and happiness, they're not there to mock you. They're a part of who you are. They are clues to help you understand who you are and more importantly why you need God. They're there to tell us that we need to stop saying I am who I say that I am and instead start saying, I am who God says I am. So who does God say that I am? Well, he says two things, I think. Uh, first of all, he says that we are creatures made in his image. Uh, don't be freaked out by like the creatures word, like we're going, ah, like gremlins or whatever it is. That's just me trying to express the fact that we are created and not the creator. Uh, and we see what it means to be made as a creature in his image in Genesis chapter 1. It's here on the screen. This is the point where he makes humanity. This is the blueprint, if you will. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Don't miss that language. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He basically says to them, here's the world, go for it. And in reading that, in that command that he gives them, we actually start to see what it is to be a human being. Where is it that our identity lies? Well, it's to be made in the image of God. That's what it is to be human, not to be self-determined, but God-determined. Now, the image of God is notoriously difficult to pin down. Uh, lots of people have lots of ideas. You know, it's our, it's our ability to reason. It's our capacity to think and have emotions. It's our morality. Uh, some people, I think, uh, more rightly will suggest that part of what it looks like is to be rulers. We, we are not just put in the earth to kind of have fun like a sandbox. We're put in the earth to build out of that sandbox beautiful things and have mastery over it. Uh, but whatever the implications um, of being made in the image of God are, one is very clear. When you walk down the uni walkway and you see another person walking past you, what you are seeing in some way is a reflection of the God who made them, a reflection of the God who made you. And what we can say from the Bible is that that's not true of chickens or whales. It's not even true of monkeys who apparently share 99% of our DNA. It is only when that you look at a human that you see God. And that's because we are God's chosen representatives on the earth. And we were made to display, to image 
God to each other and to the world. And that reality imbues us with tremendous dignity. We are special. And so how we treat each other is a reflection of how we treat God. It's why God says don't murder. It's because to kill a human being is to deface the image of God himself. And your natural instincts, I think, bear this out, don't they? Because if I went outside, picked up a flower and threw it at the wall, you wouldn't blink. If I then went and picked up a puppy dog and then threw it at the wall, you'd think I was pretty cruel. But if I went and picked up a human baby and threw it at the wall, you would call me evil. Not merely that we have a different opinion about what a human being is and what the worth of a human life is. You would, without hesitation, use moral categories to condemn me for what I had done. And the reason that you would do that is because you know in the core of your being that there is something about your humanity that makes you different from everything else. And what God tells us is that difference is because we are made in the image of God. That's the first thing that he tells us about who we are. The second thing that he tells us is that we are a creature needing to be renewed in that image. You see, something happens when we start saying, I am who I say that I am. We warp the image of God within us. It's still there, but we've severed ourselves from the God we reflect, and so we deface ourselves, and we need to be renewed. And that's why God sends Jesus. You see, Jesus is the means by which God restores that broken image that all of us carry. Jesus was the only one who ever consistently lived by the mantra, I am who God says that I am. He never doubted God's goodness. He never disregarded his word, never thought that God was holding out on him. Instead, he lived as God called him to live in a relationship of loving obedience to the God who ruled and cared for him. So when it comes to questions of identity, this is why Jesus is so important. Because he shows us what it is to be human. And God's great project is to call people back to himself and to conform them to the image of Jesus so that we might again enjoy the blessing of God. Uh, this is how he puts it in the book of Romans. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and here's his plan, to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers, many brothers and sisters. And so what we see here is the redemption of God's image. This is what the Christian life looks like, what life under God's rule looks like. It's conforming ourselves to the humanity that Jesus displays to us. But we need to be careful here, right? Because it's not as if Jesus is just an example or a template that we should live by. You know, that's just Jesus, so he did these things, so we'll do these things. He showed us kind of this moral way to live. Because if that's all Jesus is, it's just moralism. You know, oh yeah, you just need to be a good person. But, but Christianity has no time for that. To be truly human is not just about doing the right things. It's about being in the right relationship with our God. And as it stands, as we've seen from Adam and Eve, all of us stand under judgment. Because all of us have lived our lives by saying, no, I am who I say that I am. And that's why it is so important that Jesus isn't just the perfect expression of humanity, but also the means by which the relationship between God and us is restored. Well, how does he do that? Um, let's have a look at what God says in Colossians. This is chapter 1. Uh, talking to some Christians, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. 
What is it that Jesus does? He takes God's judgment and God's curse and he bears it in his own body, dying in our place so that we won't have to. And so now what happens is if we choose to return to God through Jesus, we will be received not as enemies, but as friends. And the promise that God makes to anyone who comes to him is that he will restore the image that is within you and bit by bit conform you to the image of his son. It's not going to happen instantly. There will be growing pains. You've got to learn to take off your self-defined identity and put on your God-given identity. But the promise of God is that one day Jesus will return and finish the job. And you will then one day dwell in God's new creation as you were meant to. Ruling the creation under God's rule in perfect peace and satisfaction and fulfilment. How does that happen? Well, it's simple. You stop saying, I am who I say that I am. And you start saying, I am who God says that I am. Now, at the heart of that change of mantra uh, is an acknowledgement that your attempts to define yourself aren't just misguided decisions, but rebellious attempts to throw off the God who made you to be and follow your own path. It's a decision to die to self and live for God. Here's how Jesus puts it in Mark 8. He says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, which is Jesus' praise for himself, uh, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, don't miss those first couple of verses there, verse 34 and 35, because here we have a bit of a paradox of the Christian faith. If you would seek meaning and satisfaction on your own terms, even if you're one of the few who actually finds it, you will lose it at judgment, because it is not pursued in submission to God, but in opposition to him. But if you deny yourself and you sacrifice your own desires and your own dreams and your own plans and your own hopes you will actually find something far more precious. You will find life as it was meant to be. Now, we need to be clear here. Being a Christian is not a walk in the path. In the, in the park, sorry. The Christian message is not come to Jesus and he'll just give you what you want. You can be on your merry way. Because that's not treating God as God, is it? That's treating yourself as God and him as just the means to your happiness. No, genuine Christian faith seeks to put to death our sinful self-rule and conform ourselves to God's rule. Let me tell you, that's tough. Because this side of Christ's return, life might even get worse for you. Because we live in a world that's not just broken, but filled with people who are determined to live in a way that is contrary to God's way. But what God gives us in his message of the gospel is a certain hope. That if we turn from saying, I am who I say that I am, and start saying, I am who God says that I am, he certain promises that our life, however hard it might be now, it will give way to something far better than anyone has ever imagined. So who are you? You are who God says that you are. Let me finish by saying this and encouraging you. Stop seeking after self-fulfillment. You will not attain it if you seek it on your own terms. Instead, start seeking after God and listening to what he wants. You can trust him. 
He died to restore you to a life worth living. He's not going to bait and switch you. He's not holding out on you. He's determined to bless you. But it'll always be on his terms, according to his design. And that's with us as his creatures, living under his good and perfect rule. And my understanding is, Kate, that we're having question time. Is that right? Thank you so much, Matt, uh, for talking to us. Um, it's challenging, and thank you for enlightening a few things for us as well. Um, so we do have the Slido link uh, open if you have some questions, but before we begin, maybe you've already written down a question would like to ask it now. Feel free to pop your hand up, and I'm sure Matt would love to answer your question. How did Adam and Eve become like God? Is knowing good and evil being like God? Yeah, it's a good question um, because it's not immediately clear as to what's going on there. So if we kind of go back to the, cha the chapters, this is Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent says, you will not certainly die for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, and my best guess at understanding what that means is that in the very act of disobeying God uh, and choosing to eat from the tree that he told them not to eat from, what they were doing is they were exercising their own judgment as to what was right and wrong. And so by actually eating from it and taking from that fruit, um, it's not that they were kind of naive and didn't know what good and bad was, but they were actually choosing the right to say what they thought good and bad would be. Uh, and it ties back to the whole thrust of, of what we just talked about in the talk. The, the issue is, is that they are determining how reality should be rather than using and letting God determine that reality. So I think that would be my, um, my best and short answer to that question. Thanks, Matt. Um, how, do you, how, what, how do you know who or what God wants you to be? Um, how can you tell the difference between God's thoughts and your own? Yeah. Um, I think the most straightforward uh, answer to that question is you read his word and you listen to him. Uh, and we believe that that's the Bible. And so if you want to know um, in more depth what it is that, that God thinks of you and what he would have you do in life, then you read the scriptures. And one of the things you'll, you'll come up against uh, as you read the Bible and as you seek to, um, as a Christian, live in a way that God would have you living out the identity that he's given you, you'll discover that at times uh, it, it will place demands on you that you don't want placed on you. And at other times you'll have tremendous freedom and you'll have no idea what to do with it. Uh, so let's kind of look at both of them. The first one is it'll place demands on you that you don't want. God will ask you to do things that you don't want to do. Uh, and that's not because his commands and his requests are oppressive. It's because you, in your sinful nature, want to do things your own way. And so the pain, as we listen to God's word, is that we have to continually say to ourselves, I'm not who I say that I am. I'm not going to trust that I know better and reach out and determine what good and evil is. I'm going to trust that God does. And that's a painful process. Uh, but one that God promises when Jesus returns to remove completely when he does away with our sinfulness and makes us perfect. Uh, but in answer to the rest of the question in terms of how do we know what God would have us do, aside from how he would have us live as moral creatures in the world, he actually gives us a heck of a lot of freedom. Um, your identity in Christ is not going to stop you from becoming a pilot. He's not going to say, that, okay, you can't become a businessman or a businesswoman. You can't go into medicine. Uh, you can't become the number one flower arranging podcast host um, in the world. Um, we have tremendous freedom. What matters is that we are doing it 
um, fully conscious and aware that we're, we're doing it within the rule and the bounds that God sets for us. Uh, so that's kind of some things to think about there. Next question. If the garden was good, why did God put the serpent there? Yeah, and I'm just going to be up front and say I've got no idea. Um, and the reason I have no idea is because the Bible doesn't tell me. Um, God tells us many things, they're all true, but he doesn't tell us everything. Uh, and so the existence of, of Satan, and in particular why he was evil, um, and why he wanted to see creation burn, I don't know. Um, that's just the, the straightforward truth of it. Um, we could go into much de- deeper thinking and theology about God's trajectory for creation and where he's going to bring it in Christ, where he does away with evil completely and fully. But I feel like that's the most straightforward thing to hear at that point. Um, I'm sure there are a bunch of different opinions in the room. Um, some people will agree with what you've said, finding identity in Christ, mm-hmm. but others will say, no, I'm pretty happy with myself. So do you think um, someone who does find their identity within themselves can be truly happy and find lasting happiness in this life? Lasting happiness in this life, I think, is the, the contentious <laughs> point that I want to, to grab. Uh, it's really difficult. I think one, one of the observations I've made is you're all 20, right, or thereabouts, kind of give or take a couple of years. Um, virtually none of you have suffered. Um, some of you have suffered very deeply, and so I don't want to dismiss that. Uh, some of us have seen uh, friends and family die. We've kind of suffered with chronic illness. But the majority of us have had a pretty sweet ride. Uh, and so it's really hard to hear that the way that I'm living my life now um, is somehow flawed, and not just flawed pragmatically, but actually morally there's an issue that I need to, to be accountable for. Uh, but one of the things that I've observed is kind of when you shift from 20 and you move to your 30s and then to your 40s, life starts to get at you. Uh, miscarriages happen. Uh, your friends divorce. Families are ruined. Sickness comes to roost and it can't be thrown apart. Uh, can you achieve happiness in this life? I think you can. We've all been happy, right? Uh, will we be perpetually happy, satisfied completely? No. Um, because there's an unavoidable reality that the world that we live in is now broken by our sinful rebellion uh, and we will feel the effects of that. Now, that doesn't mean that you won't find somebody who, at the age of 60, has lived their best life now and gone, I have never had a problem, I'm completely satisfied, uh, and I'm very happy with everything that I've done, and I did it my way. And I actually want to say that's a tragedy because that's one of the few people that has not heard God's megaphone to the world saying that there is something wrong that you need to address. Uh, Can you find happiness in this life? Yes. Will it last? No. And we saw that in the last quote from Jesus, didn't we, in Mark 8. If anyone would seek to save their life, they will lose it because the very act of trying to seize it and make it happen on their own terms is to disregard God, the one who seeks to bless you. Matt. Um, one more. We've got time for one last question. So quickly upvote the question that you would like to be um, asked. Um, thank you so much uh, for your time, Matt. We've, yeah, I've found this very, very helpful. Um, so keep upvoting which question you would like. All right. And it seems to be, how do you deny yourself without sacrificing parts of yourself, like your aspirations, all those type of things? Yeah. Um, it's a really good question. Um, because sometimes you won't have to. Um, 
ultimately, and this question was asked last week as well, ultimately it comes down to matters of the heart and why you're pursuing the things that you're pursuing. Uh, so how is it that you deny yourself? Um, it, it's being aware that, that when you become a Christian and you put yourself back under the rule of God and acknowledge that you are a creature for God's service, that he will care for and he will bless, uh, that he will call you to do things in his service that will be deeply painful and costly. Um, an example might be somebody who becomes a missionary, goes overseas to people who don't want to hear about Jesus, even though Jesus is the only hope that they have, and so they kill that person. Uh, that, that could be an extreme measure of denial. A more basic one might just be, um, let me think, your choice to get up early in the morning on a Sunday to go to church to be with God's people and hear his word read rather than sleeping in or playing computer games, right? So simple. But the rule of Christ over us compels us to do certain things and not others because some things will be honouring to God and some things won't be. Um, in terms of, what does that mean in terms of denying your aspirations? I think it just ties back into the freedom stuff again, doesn't it? Right? You will have to test, and again, you won't be able to work this out by yourself, which is why God gives us each other. You'll need to test whether the things that you're pursuing are God-honouring, either in their nature. So if you want to you know, go out and make a crime organisation, probably not a good idea, okay? Uh, and, and hopefully if you haven't worked that one out yourself, we'll tell you, actually, no, that, that, that's not how you live under God's rule as his creature. Maybe you should think about creating a number one flower-arranging podcast instead. Um, but other things are trickier to understand, right? Uh, and this is important, particularly for you guys at UWA, right? You are very intelligent, capable people. And you have desires and drives to exercise your abilities and achieve things. Law students, med students, engineering students. Um, but, but whatever it is, um, it is very easy to pursue that same goal, part of the thing that God has created in the world, for good reasons, seeking to honour Jesus, um, or bad reasons, because you think it's going to give you what you want in the way that you want it. Um, I can't give you any more precise thing than that other than you talk and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Uh, but that's why God gives us each other to work those things out and to test us. And as we read the Bible and as we hear things like Jesus say, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, God in his kindness will tickle our conscience and prod us where we don't want to be prodded to remind us and help us understand how to do just that. There you go. Thanks very much, Matt.